Hey guys, how's it going? This is Jake Aldridge on the Stand Tall or Fall Short podcast. This is episode number four, What True Love Feels Like. And we have a very, very special guest joining us today. I'm so happy and proud to introduce none other than my mum, Louise Clayden. How are you doing today? Yeah, really good, Jake. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. And we're really happy to have you on. Um, I really want to firstly say thank you so much for joining me today and for agreeing to do this because, frankly, I don't think many mothers would. And it's a real honour to kind of officially ask you questions about the love of your life. Obviously, my dad, who you met so young and, and shared such an amazing relationship with. And the reason for me wanting to have you on here today and to share your story with us is because I honestly think many people don't even know that true love exists. Like many people haven't found it for themselves or haven't even witnessed it yet. And since I'm somebody who has witnessed it, you know, I thought of no better person than yourself to share it with us today. One thing I'd firstly like to ask you is my dad was born and raised in Bangladesh while you were born and raised in Canada. Rosie Semby would like to know how and where the two of you met for the first time. When Aubrey came from Bangladesh, he came to England because his mother and father had both died two years previously, so he was orphaned, but he had siblings. Family of the mother, the four sisters, decided that they would bring them to England. They all had to be split up you know, around the place, mostly London, I'd say, or the outskirts. And Aubrey and Des, his brother, um, they went to his auntie and uncle in Wimbledon. And I'd also been in Canada only till I was two and a half. And then I'd ended up in Wimbledon, age 11, and your dad was 12. See, I think that's such an amazing start to the story, really, because, you know, you're 11, he's 12, he's from Bangladesh, you were born and raised in Canada, you know, you're now got this chance meeting in Wimbledon, you know, it's almost like it's, it was meant to be really, you know. And when he'd moved to Wimbledon, and you'd moved to Wimbledon, how far apart were your houses? Five minute walk, very close. Okay, that is close. So am I right in thinking that you guys went to the same middle school? Yes, same middle school. And there's a bit of a story attached to this, isn't there? Yeah, there is, because um, firstly, I didn't know how old Aubrey was. That was a big question mark. So I didn't know if he'd be... That's when I gauged how old he was. I don't know why I didn't ask him. It's really ridiculous. But he started school... We met in the summer holidays, so he started in September, and I realised he was a year older than me because he was in the year above. So that answered my questions. So that was quite nice. I thought, oh, yeah, that's good. And um, But his behaviour at school um, did, did deteriorate quite a lot, and I just think it was because he had never been able to release his emotions from losing his parents or the upheaval of leaving Bangladesh. Um and just a new way of life with an auntie and uncle that had two other children to look after. And it was difficult. And just to give people an idea of like the, the complete drastic change in culture that he was experiencing, you said that when he arrived in the country, he was like having some like mad, he was mesmerised, you know? Oh, yeah. He'd, he'd never really seen sweets as we have sweets for one. But the biggest thing he told me was... When he landed, he thought England was just a car park. He just had never seen so many cars. Um, and and for me to try and understand that, because everything was normal to me, or how I thought was normal, um, it was it was funny. It was a funny time. So how did the two of you guys meet? Was it was that from school or was it outside of school? Like, do you remember the very first time you laid eyes on him, if you like? Yeah, the first time I saw him was sitting on the park bench in the park right across the road from my house. And he was sitting with his brother, Des, and they had the same 
the same top on, a mottly browny, creamy top and the same trousers, um, like twins, really. And like, how did you, can you describe to us like how you felt at that particular moment? Like I'm trying to figure out, was it, would you say it was like love at first sight or were you just interested? You know, were you intrigued? No, I was really, really interested, really intrigued. Yeah, Yeah. very much so. Both good looking chaps, you know, and I was only young, but I thought, oh yeah, look, two new guys sitting there. Very (laughs) interested. So Tom Lawrence and Natasha Griffiths have both asked, what was it about Aubrey that intrigued you? at that time even at such a young age you know what really kind of when you got to know him you know what really kind of pulled you in oh he was just his all I can say and it sounds very strange was he had such a good soul he was such a lovely person he was always happy even though he'd had um a really bad start in a way because at nine he had lost his father and at 10 he had lost his mother but he had such a great outlook on life he was so happy happy go lucky guy See, I think that's amazing. And it reminds me of almost the scene out of Titanic where you have Jack, who is obviously the much less fortunate and and Rose, who's a little bit more privileged, you know, but the, but the two combine and, and all of that is put to the side because of the love that they sort of had for each other. And I really think it's a credit to you as well for you to have been that open minded at such a young age. I mean, you were 11 years old. He was 12 years old. Yet you were like open to new cultures and you were open minded enough and smart enough to realise there's something really special about this guy. Now, Denise Wilson has asked, where did you meet for your first day and how did it go? Well, I guess the the first date was when he came on a Sunday morning, supposedly supposed to be going to church because his family were Catholic. Um, his auntie and uncle had said, now, Aubrey, you go to a different service to us, but you tell us who the father was, who did the service, to make sure that he did go. Anyway, he came to my house. We went for our lovely walk and walked past a motorbike shop. And he always dreamed of having a Harley Davidson on these beautiful big bikes. And at 12 years old or 13, I can't remember when it was, he'd be smoking number six cigarettes. Um, we'd walk towards the church and he'd ask somebody coming out, who was the father doing the service today? And they'd say, Father Camaro. And he'd say, okay, okay, thanks. And he'd tell his auntie and she was very satisfied that he'd been to church like a good boy. <laughs> so he was very cheeky like that. Very cheeky. Obviously, if they'd have varied the question and changed it every time, he would have been caught out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they stuck with the same question, he got away with it. And that kind of appealed to you, that sort of cheekiness? Because it was exciting for me. Right. At that young age, all I would have done was play in the park you know rounders with a couple of girlfriends or go to their houses it wasn't this was exciting and tell me about when you you guys went to school together like there's a really interesting story that comes along with that right yeah this would never ever happen today and when I think about it I don't know why it happened then I went to an all-girl no this is when I went into high school I went to an all-girls school so uh, how old were you here sorry I must have been 13 maybe and because Aubrey had been um, a little naughty. He had left my middle school and gone to um, a school for children that needed more help. Let's just say that. Anyway, my headmistress was a very good girl, very good um, studious girl in my high school. But I got um, a call to say I had to go and see the headmistress. And I was shocked because I thought, what reason does she want to see me? You know, I haven't done anything. It's scary. So off I went to her office and I sat down and I was a bit shaky thought what have I done what have I done and she said do you know a boy called Aubrey and then I was really thinking what is going on how does she know and I said yes and she said I've had his headmaster Mr Playfoot his name was 
um, on the phone and Aubrey has um, uh, punched a, a teacher, I think, and he won't have anybody but you. He just wants you. So Mr. Playfit's come up with the idea that every Wednesday, and I think Wednesday's good for you because I've looked at your books, you could go to his school and you can do geography with him. How does that sound? And I was thinking, it's mad. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm 13. So anyway, off I go. It was quite a long walk as well. That was the bit that put me off. Going all the way to his school. But he was so good and he was like a sponge, really. He just wanted to learn everything. He didn't know one capital of any country in the world. So we did that and we went through the whole map and we went through the whole world and... It taught me at the same time as it taught him. I think it's such an amazing story and even more so because obviously it wouldn't happen in today's world, you know, at that time. You know, it's just incredible, I guess, what went on and the fact that they recognised your bond was so strong at such a young age that they allowed you to do that. Um, John Baldry has asked, at what age was it that the two of you became an item? How long did that take if you met when you were 11 years old? I'll say 13, pretty much 13 sounds young, but 13. And tell us how you would spend your wages when you used to do a paper round. Oh, yeah, when I did the paper round, um, I couldn't carry the bag, so I had a pram. So off I'd go, and at the end of the week, when I got my £2 wages or whatever it was, I can't remember, I spent the whole amount on chocolate bars for Aubrey. And I used to go to his road, which is on my round, post them through the letterbox in the early part of the morning to the horror of his auntie and uncle who used to come down and see all these chocolate bars on the mat and just wondered what it was all about. I absolutely love that. And it must have been weird for them, obviously, like being in this new environment, you know, a new country. And uh, obviously they've got Aubrey there, you know, still a young boy. And, and, and there he is, you know, he struck up this bomb with this young girl who lives five minutes down the road. You know, she's dropping chocolate bars through the door after a paper round. You know what I mean? Like, what do you think she they thought of you? What do you think their opinion was of you at that time? Oh, definitely the auntie and uncle that he lived with. Um, not a lot, I would say. Um, I used to sit at the end of the road, and you know, it was summer probably, and I'd sit on the pavement. And I'd just wait for a glimpse of him, like he was my a pop star or my idol, my hero. I just had to see him, and it just made me feel so good. And as they drove past in the car, he'd give a little sneaky wave, and they'd say, "Oh, there's that Hupchi woman." And I used to think, Aubrey said to me, it's not a very good word, it's a bit derogatory. It wasn't the best word. I love that. I wonder if they would admit to that now. Um, one thing I want to know is, like, you mentioned that he struggled academically, he struggled with his behaviour. Obviously, you know, he'd come all the way over from Bangladesh, it was a new culture. He had lost his mum, he'd lost his dad at such a young age. You know, he was going through all these kind of different emotions, which, which you know, frankly, I would have no idea what that would have felt like for him. You mentioned that his behaviour had deteriorated. I wondered, like, what was his behaviour like with you? Did you experience any of that? sort of negativity or any of that backlash never ever nothing not even anger really nothing that's pretty remarkable really and it kind of just goes to show how unique the relationship the two of you had I imagine that you must have you know brought so much light into his life at that young age at what age was it that he was kicked out of his auntie and uncle's house um well I'm trying to think about that and I would say I was still at school so I must have been 15 maybe 15 but yes he did he, he got kicked out of his um auntie and uncle's home and had literally nowhere to go so he took a shopping trolley and went to the house and picked up his clothes and his belongings and sat in the park trying to think 
what we could do really or where he was going to live. And then I came across the plan that my father had built the most brilliant shed at the end of our garden made of brick, quite big, with a concrete floor. So I got a sleeping bag and I pulled a pillow from my bed and the odd blanket from the airing cupboard and stuffed them all under his workbench, hidden. But every night Aubrey would know that they were there and he could use them. And I'd make a hot water bottle quite late into the night so I could take it down the path to the shed. But the, the garden was probably 100 foot long, you know, it was a long garden. And in the early morning, I used to want to give him something to eat because he's probably really hungry. So I used to get up at the crack of dawn and make a fried breakfast, but I had to be a bit like, um, I call it Columbo really, because the stove would be hot when my parents would get up. So I couldn't, I thought, what should I do? I put cold water on it to cool it down, open the window to let the smell out, move things around in the fridge so it wasn't obvious I'd taken some bacon or some eggs. But I used to cook him mostly a cooked breakfast every day. And that went on for two weeks. Two weeks and it was hard work, we going to school, and Aubrey doing whatever he was doing in the day because um, he, he should have been getting a job, I think, because I think he must have been 16. So I was 15. Yeah, it was really, really hard times. And then I think I just said to my mum, Aubrey's got nowhere to live. And she went, I could live here. And I thought, I've done this for two weeks. It was a bit like, what do you mean? And then he moved in. And did she know that he was obviously in the shed the whole time? I did tell I did tell them both my parents yeah they were quite amazed actually because they had no idea it really is one of my most favourite stories that you've ever told me, you know, because here's this like young Bangladeshi kid, you know what I mean, he's come all the way from over there, you know, we're, we're very little and he's kind of like, you know, keeping warm in your shed, he's getting cooked breakfast, you know, every day for two weeks, do you know what I mean? There's husbands living at home who don't get that, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure that he was loving it and uh, he, he really must have felt like he, he fell on his feet with you, you know. But when you eventually introduced him to your parents, what did they think of him like did they just think you were a couple of young kids and it was going to fizzle out in time or do you think they understood how serious it really was well at first I think they thought it was just a couple of young kids but as time went on and on my father took me to um Paris um on a trip just the two of us which was lovely but the whole time I drove him mad because I said what well, can I buy Aubrey's a present I must get him a present if we find a phone box I'm gonna call him I'm gonna call him and what can I get him as a gift and then my mother took me to Holland and it wasn't the fact, I guess, that they wanted Aubrey out of my life at all. They just didn't think I'd had enough experience with other lads to know whether this lad was the best. But when they said to me, for instance, there's more pebbles on the beach, I said, I only want this pebble. Then they said, there's more fish in the sea. And I said, I just want this fish because I knew, I knew exactly whether I was young or not. I knew that this was something I couldn't let go of. And if we had parted, maybe we would have parted for good. And I didn't want that to happen. Perhaps you've already partly answered this question, but Carolyn Moore, Tracy Sykes, Gillian Uttridge, Lisa Locke, Jerry Doval and Lauren Frost would like to know, how did you know that he was the one? Because obviously, as we've already said, you were so young, you'd had limited experience with other guys. You know, was there a key factor that made you think like, this is the guy for me for the rest of my life? Because I think this is a really important question because I want other people to know what they're looking for. Do you know what I mean? Have they already found the one? You know, what are they looking for if they haven't found the one? What, what does that feeling feel like? He just had a really good soul. It's as though I could see it. I could see it like a picture. And it was so good. 
and really speaking, I know it sounds a bit mad to a lot of people, but and I'm not religious. He was quite godly to me. He was such, I had such a good heart, really. And I just knew that he was the right person and I wanted to be with this guy. Lisa Bell has asked, what was the most romantic experience that you guys shared together? Because one that comes to my mind is when he was working offshore in Scotland, like North North Scotland as well, you know, he surprised you and he came back one night and then drove back to work the next day, you know, and, and that always sticks out in my mind. But is there other times and, and, and romantic stories that you would like to share over these guys? Oh, there's so many. There is so many. I can't... Because we were a sort of couple. We were very touchy-feely and we were always telling each other we loved each other. So there's so many. I don't think I could even think of one specific. I think that's a really good point you've just raised there because... I remember you being really um, outspoken about your feelings towards each other and not just your feelings towards each other, but your feelings towards us as kids. You know, you would always tell us that you loved us and that kind of thing. And it kind of made me that way growing up, you know, when I would be with my best friend when I was young, you know, I'd say, love you, man, you know, and it used to make him feel uncomfortable, you know, and and now we laugh about it, of course. And he's kind of, you know, come over to my way of thinking, but it's all stemmed from you guys and being like open with your feelings, you know, and I feel like I really owe so much to you and dad because you've really given me this idealistic view of love in general, you know, I, I know like when I was growing up, I would go to friends' houses and I'm sure that they were very much in love in their own way and whatever else, but it never felt quite the same. The vibe was never quite the same as you guys. And, and, and to me, they, no one ever seemed as happy as, as the two of you did. And it's, it's definitely helped me in my life to to kind of aim for that. You know, I feel like a lot of my friends uh, don't have this idealistic view of love like I do. And I only have it because I witnessed it via you guys. So I really do have to thank you for that. Now, by the age of 16, he was 16, you were 15, your family had pretty much taken him in. What I want to know is, do you think that this was like the most stable part of his young life up until that point? And do you think that it's fair to say that that stability kind of helped make him the person that he became to an extent oh yeah because um i think as well down the road in our marriage when we'd had the children we bonded so well as a couple because he was so young when he came into my family that he took on the morals and he took on the the um the way my family acted and the way that we behaved towards each other and i think that helped me because we were of a one more than two separate people we were so similar in lots of ways, but not always, but in those ways of bringing up your children, we didn't have any fights about it. It was all very smooth and easy. My friend Catherine Lois has asked, what was Aubrey's favourite meal that you would cook for him, other than the cooked breakfast in the garage, of course? God, I don't think I was the best cook at all then. He was definitely the cook. But I would cook um, roasts, not particularly well, but I think he enjoyed food. He just enjoyed food. Um, spaghetti bolognese was one of the favourites. Um, but that was a sad dish for me because I'd cooked it um, on the day he got killed. And for a long time afterwards, I remember I couldn't cook that dish. I couldn't even think about that. It's so strange. Um, yeah, I think probably that was one of his favourite dishes. You know, I didn't actually know that. And obviously we're going to talk more about, you know, the the time after my dad passed away um but my friend angela mcdonough 
met her husband when she was 19 and they've been married for 33 years, she would like to know what your favourite memory was with my dad before you got married. It was when my parents paid for us, bless them, to go to the Silly Isles where they met as a couple. And the Silly Isles is a very tranquil, beautiful place to be. Aubrey absolutely loved it. Um, the beaches are near enough empty. Um, loads of wildlife, loads of birds everywhere. Um, we took little boats, both of us, to go to the other islands like Briar. And it was a fantastic um, time for us together. My friend Dave says that his first marriage was unfortunately ruined because his wife was so jealous. He would like to know were there ever times where you were jealous? Um, A little not not particularly a lot, but a little, I would say, yeah. So not too much. It didn't really affect us. Obviously, despite being from different cultures, you guys did have a lot in common, you know, like it, it just worked, you know, from the get-go. But despite this, there were times where you guys would argue. And I remember, you know, you would argue quite a lot. You know, things would get very heated at times, you know. Um, I, I remember my brother would, would, would tell me stories that, dad would take him out for a walk and um, and my brother would say you know where are we going what are we doing and, and he would say we're just letting your mother cool down for a little bit you know and the only reason that I mentioned this is because you know I don't want people to feel like you know you guys were in love and it was just perfect all of the time do you know what I mean like I want people to understand that you know even though you were so crazy in love you know you argued like everybody else oh I remember once at a particularly bad time we'd gone to Littles near Yarmouth and I don't know what happened in the queue. I really can't remember what this was about. And it was probably very trivial. But I took myself off in this huff and decided to walk home. Leah was the only one in the car because you must have been at nursery or somewhere. And Benjamin must have been at school. I don't know. Anyway, she, I remember her being in the car, in a car seat. And I went off. And obviously, Aubrey thought I was in another shop on the little retail park that we were at. So he obviously checked out all the shops and I was nowhere to be seen. And I had walked past James Padgett, which is a hell of a way. Some of it didn't have pavements. It was really awful. But I am so stubborn. Anyway, he pulled up and said, get in. And I said, no. And then I looked at Leah's little face crying. And I just got in. And that was it. And I really tried to think what, what the argument was even about. And I didn't know. So I think probably by the time we got home, we both laughed about it. And I said, I don't know what it's about, do you? And he went, no, not really. And that was it. It didn't go on and on and on and on. And I always remember the, the, the Mars bar that went over the wall, you know. I don't even know what that argument was about. No, I don't know what the argument was about. But his packed lunch went over the brick wall of our house onto the um, grass the other side and sat there getting rained on for days. And then my friend Robbie Dawson came along and uh, found it, you know, a couple of days later, obviously still in the wrapper and everything. And, and he, he tucked straight into that. <laughs> really enjoyed it, I think. You know, and back then the Mars bars were a lot bigger, of course. But uh, that leads is on quite nicely to my friend Peggy Van Woody would like to know how you think it is best to deal with disagreements in a relationship where two people you know have a, have a different perspective I think talking communicating is really the essence of a good relationship and listening and listening to the other person so you have to listen to them and then they have to listen to you and you sort of have to come to a compromise, really. And if you've upset somebody, this is a big thing I say, but they're completely unaware that you should be upset because they have no idea they've upset you. I just think they, that they should say, I'm sorry if I have upset you. Yeah. And that's the end. Yeah. 
even though they don't know the reason why you're upset. But as we spoke about earlier, you know, you've always been somebody who has always spoken your mind. And I really like that. And I've kind of taken that on myself because one thing I can't stand in, in, in all of my relationships over the years, you know, different relationships is, is when somebody would say, would, would not tell you what it is you've done wrong and you like spending the day trying to figure it out, you know, or if somebody perhaps um, lets an issue kind of pass them by and then when you have a big row, you know, all these separate issues all come up at once. I think that's a terrible way to be, you know. I feel like you should have, you know, arguments little and often, do you know what I mean, rather than one big one in, in, in one hit. Now, we've got a question here from Tom Moran, who we, of course, know very well. Uh, he says hello, and he would like to know what the secret is to a long-lasting relationship. A, a hell of a lot of give and take, and a hell of a lot of trying to trying to get into the person's shoes and seeing it from their perspective, I guess, which I do try and do, but I'm not a perfect person. One thing I'd like to know is that when we were kids, you know, mobile phones had only just really started to come around and uh, obviously the internet didn't even exist at that time. Uh, I would like to know if you think the absence of technology helped to bring couples closer together at that period. Yeah, definitely, because I'm I'm guilty of that um, in the relationship I'm in now because I'm forever on my phone. But sometimes I say to the husband that I'm married to now, Andy, that he's not a great talker. So I feel like I use my phone as a little bit of company. Yeah. Um, so I do it in that respect. But years ago, we had love letters we used to send each other and you used to send letters in the post. And you you had to see each other a lot more because you couldn't ring each other. Yeah. You couldn't text. Yeah. So you used to make a lot of effort of actually bodily being together. Yeah. Now, you and my dad were both very, very different people. Uh, almost like, you know, dare I say, opposites in in many ways. Do you think that this was a case of opposites attract? Yeah, he was was a lovable rogue, um, as a lot of people um, listening to this, I guess, will know. And I think I tamed him to a certain extent. Um, Not always, but I think I did. I think I was a sensible head sometimes. Because there is an argument that says, you know, perhaps you helped to rein him in. And maybe he helped to, you know, bring you out of your comfort zone and to bring you out of your shell, if you like. Yeah, because I think that after his death, I took on that role a bit more. I decided, you know, he he once told me that the die that the death of his mother and father was the worst thing that could ever happen to him. There couldn't be anything that could top that. So he was going to go for it. He was going to live his life, um, the fullest and the best. And I think he did, but it's just short. Yeah, and I think this is what made him so humble and what made him so special, you know. It's almost like he'd come all the way over from Bangladesh. He was really, you know, underprivileged. And here he was over here in this country, kind of like living the dream a little bit is is how it seemed to me, you know. Always so cheerful, always so happy, always cracking jokes, you know. It's like he was just the most humble person you'd ever met. Now, my friends, Roxanne... Anne Brewer, Louise Goddard and Elizabeth McAllister would like to know how it was that you were able to carry on after obviously losing the love of your life and you had three children to raise as well. Because to put it into perspective for everybody else, you know, I was 11 years old, my brother was 13 and Leah was 10. I think the shock shock of it, you don't... I can't remember the first six months of his death, really. Just snippets. But I can't remember it. The shock of it was immense. My world had just changed so much. 
Um, I was absolutely devastated. But all I kept thinking was, all the time, every day and every night, I think, what would Aubrey want me to do? What would he want me to do? And he'd want me to bring the kids up the best I could. And that's, I'm so thankful for having three children because really that's what got me through. I think if I hadn't had you, I don't know. I don't know. It often reminds me of those stories you hear about where, say, a lady has lifted up a car to get her child out from underneath or, do you know what I mean, like just found this inner strength from somewhere. It really does remind me of that. And it leads me on to the fact that you've always told me how after my dad passed away, you felt like you had taken on many of his characteristics and adopted it to your everyday life almost like you were keeping his spirit alive as such and i wondered whether his death in some indirect way managed to empower you do you feel like that played a part in you managing to carry on and you managing to continue oh definitely definitely and i think i was even aware of it sounds funny that um to say that you sort of take part of him, but I was, it, it really um, nurtured me. It's, it's like putting a duvet around me to think that I had part of him still with me. And so I think I did uh, take that on board quite a lot. I used to go to the grave a lot, uh, uh, all the time, sit there for hours. And um, one particular time when I was so ill, and this is grief, I'm ill with grief. I decided there's nothing for it. I have to get in, I have to get in. And what I'm going to do, I planned it. I put the shovel in the boot of the car. I thought the headlights would be the light because you can park very near to where he's um, buried. And I'm going to dig and I'm going to go and lay in there with him. And that's what I want to do. So I drove up there, got the shovel out of the boot. The headlights were on, shining onto the grave. Walked over and there's a mound of earth. It's very ugly when somebody's first passed. It's it's not a pretty sight. It's some, this mound of orange earth. And I just stood there and cried, basically, leaning on my shovel, thinking, I'm not going to do it. I knew I wasn't going to do it, really. But I was desperate. I desperately wanted him back. And I desperately, yeah, I desperately wanted to be with him. It's difficult. I don't want to demean anybody who has lost anyone because obviously it's incredibly hard for everybody and everybody's situation is also very, very different. But I just feel like in this particular case, you weren't just losing anybody, you know, you were losing your soulmate. And I have no idea how that must have been for you. You know, even looking back now, I, I still don't know how you did it. And uh, I really think that you should take pride in, in knowing that you did do it. And uh, I really think and hope that you'll you'll look at your life now like, you know, you if you did that, you can do anything. You know, you really did do the most incredible job of, of raising us as kids and, and to carry on with your own life as well. Yeah, weirdly, um, I knew <laughs> it's wrong, but I thought I knew that I'd never get married again. Um, That was sort of. I'd put that to rest and um, eight years I was on my own and I had friends and I went to work and it was okay and your dad is still such a, he is today though such a part of my life he will be every day but Leah decided I think she had a word with me and sort of said you know mum you're 47 come on now let's you could date now why don't you date and she put me on a dating site which worked out to be absolutely horrendous 
and um, it really opened my eyes out to some peculiar people in this world. Um, but because I hadn't dated, because Aubrey was my only um, true love, I had nothing to go on. So I was very, very, um, like, really immature about it all. I didn't really understand about it. See, right there is something that I'd never even thought about. You know, not only had you lost someone so special in your life, you had never, ever experienced what it was like to to date someone you know the the only one person who who you had you met when you were 11 years old so you know and and everybody else in in day-to-day life you know will will meet new people and you know go through these kind of new experiences of meeting people whether it's high school college university you know you never any had any of that so not only was it really really foreign to you because you know you were eight years on your own you were about to try and start again but you had to kind of you know, almost learn how it all works as such, which is pretty incredible in itself. And it must have been nice for you to have had my sister's blessing, almost like she was encouraging you to to give it a go. Yes, definitely. If it had been anybody else, I would have probably poo-pooed it. But because it was Leah, and she was very sincere in what she was saying, um, I thought, "Mm, let's just try, just see what happens. My friend Elizabeth McAllister has asked... What advice can you give the rest of us who are still looking for true love? Because, as I said earlier, a lot of people haven't experienced it. Some people don't even know that it exists. So I want people to understand, you know, what it is that they are looking for and perhaps what sort of signs they can be looking out for. Because I feel like from experiences that I've had and people that I've spoken to recently, I feel like when it's a real struggle at the beginning... It's probably not right. Do you know what I mean? I feel like in my experience of my new relationship, it's been so easy. Obviously, you know, there are times of difficulty, but generally it's been so, so easy. And I feel like maybe that's something for people to look out for. When it's a real battle and a real struggle, I just don't think it's meant to be, you know? Well, I guess I always say that the person who's looking for love, they've got to work on themselves as well. They've got to be in a situation themselves where they like themselves got to really love yourself because I feel you've got to sell yourself why would somebody want to love you if you don't love yourself so as many hang-ups get rid of as many hang-ups as as you can and it's difficult this isn't easy but I think then you'll attract someone and you'll see things better they'll see you as the person you are and I think then it should sail it should sail through there shouldn't be too many stumbles if there's too many stumbles then probably it's not right obviously now you're happily remarried and I'm really pleased for you that you're happy and that you've found somebody who who makes you happy it must have been so difficult for you when you first met your new husband because you know naturally he's not going to be the same as my dad you know every person is different but there must have been a time where you were looking for the exact same and you perhaps you couldn't find that and you must have somehow realised that, of course, nobody is the same and everybody is different. Yeah, um, I think because after eight years, uh, after your father's death, and I did start dating a, a few a few guys and they were awful, really, the whole lot of them. Um, when I met Andy, who I'm now married to, it was like a breath of fresh air, I have to say, and it did give me this sense that there is somebody like Aubrey, not... I don't mean like in the ways of Aubrey, but a good person. There's other good people out there. They're not all these rotters that tell you lies. Um, So on our first day, it was very, very special. And I felt that I was honestly in the clouds looking down at myself. It was surreal. It was 
it was fabulous um and i had this fantastic feeling and as people said to me i worked in a boutique at the time and all the customers said to me louise will you stop grinning and i could my face was hurting because i was smiling so much um so i knew i just that that was a good thing but i will say that meeting andy at the age i was 47 he's a few years younger than me um so You've, he had his life completely different to my life. He had brought his children up differently to how I brought my children up. We were very, very different people. And because your morals and the way you live your life is, is sort of inbuilt in you by then, in your 40s, you're sort of done. It's sort of there. I have, We have, both of us, have found it quite difficult in ways um, to come together. Whereas with your father, I, we were both children and we grew together. So it is a very different relationship. You know, for me, I'm just really pleased that you have found someone and that you have found happiness and can continue on with your life, you know. Um, I just want to say thanks so much for, for coming on today. I really appreciate it and I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've learned so much stuff that I didn't already know. I hope that other people have enjoyed it. I really think that they would have. And to me, it's just such, such an amazing story that it should be shared. And I really want people to, to see that, you know, true love does exist and that um, maybe now they'll recognise a few of the signs perhaps that you shared with them today and uh, maybe it will help them as well. Um I do have one final question for you that I didn't actually prepare you for. My friend Helen has asked, how do you manage to always look so good? <laughs> Sweet Helen, whoever you are, you're lovely and I love you very much. Thanks so much for coming on. Okay, take care.